March the 3rd, 2013, lecture discussion number 101 on the Book of Romans. And let me quickly include for the vast internet audience that gets more and more vast every week. I'm just amazed, by the way, and thank you for those of you who are writing and, and, and helping us a great deal. It's our dream, as you know, to someday go back to our own building and, uh, and you are helping. And we can tell and the difference it might make for us is uh, uh, really profound. Because this is not much fun to be parasiting ourselves in somebody else's building. So uh, let me thank you for that. But I also want you to know that Lecture 102 will be on March the 17th. Uh, March the 10th, uh, we're suspending to March the 10th for spring break. will not be utilized and, and no class on March 10th. Uh, and so the next Lecture 102 will be on March 17th. Okay, speaking of the Internet, folks, um, I got a whole bunch of mail this week. I've got one to read to you, uh, but um, most of them are just... Uh, very brief, and they all want to, uh, uh, they have questions for me, as you know. Sharon from Texas. Hi, Sharon. Uh, she wants to know why I haven't returned to Noah yet, because I did the Noah-Adam um, symmetry and haven't gotten back to it. And she said, listen, you're cliffside and not cliffhanger. I want, I want to have my Noah, and I want it now, and I haven't got to it yet, and uh, that made me laugh. Jennifer from Arizona, she's interested in the waking mes- mechanism of the brain. Um, and Bob from Palm Desert is finding, he's, he's looking at the typology of Paul in Acts uh, 27 and 28, and, and he finds that particularly applicable to where we are in Romans chapter 5. And he's right about that. And, and uh, Lawal from Nigeria, uh, he wants a definition of love as God defines love. Um, it's important when God says he's love and that love never fails, he's talking about himself right there. Uh, he, when he says uh, love never fails, he means he never fails. So you have to have a proper definition of love as God defines it, and that really helps you understand uh, what he means by love your enemies. When you love your enemies, what are you doing for them? Yeah, you want them saved. So you are praying for your enemies uh, to be saved and you are teaching them of the salvation of Christ. That is loving your enemy. That is heaping coals of fire on their head, right? And needless to say, those, those are just four of many that uh, came in this week and I intend to include eventually or soon, um, which to me are the same word, as you know. Eventually means soon to me. But I, I, I do uh, intend to get to their topics. Let me just put them on the board because they do fit in. I have this Noah typology. I have this Noah Adam symmetry that is there. We have got to go back and explain that. Uh, what happened to Noah in the tent? Remember, he says to you, or it says very clearly that he knew immediately what happened to him in the tent. And how that, how that gets you into Leviticus and how that might get you other places in the Bible. Uh, trying to figure out why it was that the grandson was uh, cursed there. And I, like I said, I intend to get to that eventually soon. And then Jennifer is interested uh, in consciousness and, and, uh, and unconsciousness. You see, if you have consciousness, and we all know we have consciousness, then we must have unconsciousness, right? And what I'm doing for you right now is... Proving that I can spell consciousness and unconsciousness. That's not easy. But, the, but to recognize the waking mechanism, 
of the brain, very important in the implications of it. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, um, what I'm going to do to you today is start introducing Wilder Penfield, uh, who was a neurological genius. Uh, he was a neurologist. I was explaining it to Dave earlier today. There's a book out there called The Man They Wouldn't Let Die. His name was Lev Landau. He was a famous, brilliant Russian physicist that got into a car accident and his brain, he had a brain injury. Wilder Penfeld was brought in to deal with him because the Russians could not lose this man. And what he learned from talking to him uh, over time and what happened to Lev Landau, a very important thing. Wilder Penfeld was the man, let me just do this briefly so you understand. He was the man that um, treated epileptics. And he figured out what he would do is he would open up the brain skull system and access the brain. And then he would use electrical impulses to do things uh, to you or to the person that was still conscious. And he would talk to them while he would do it. And he would ask them questions. He would move their arm and ask them, what happened? And they would say to him, you moved my arm. I didn't move it. You moved it. And you had this, this, now we had two minds battling over one body. And it was fascinating, but he'd also be able to access their memories. And by stimulating that area of the brain where the memories were stored, he could cause those memories to flash right in front of them in incredible detail. And they knew they weren't doing it. He was doing it to them. And the implications of that. To Romans 5.12. What's Romans 5.12? Through one man, death entered the world. And Wilder Penfield wrote a fantastic book. Very hard to find. I happen to have a copy of it. Where he wrestled with the with what he learned. What it meant. And he, uh, he came to some interesting conclusions. So, uh, consciousness and unconsciousness. And then the uh, typology of Paul... Or sometimes, uh, I can spell unconsciousness, I can't spell Paul. And then uh, uh, finally, what was the last one? Oh, uh, definition of love. As God defines love. Not as you define it, as God defines it. You define it if you're like me, you're going to be wrong. And all of those connect to Romans 5.12 in their own way. And all have a direct path to Romans 5.12, which is where we are, as you know. So this is really Romans 5.12. Now I'm going to take on Jennifer really fast. Because uh, she, by the way, knows that I'm heading, headed back to the mind-brain. She has a particular interest in it. And, and soon, eventually, which is all one word now, it'll show up in Scrabble in a couple of... Well, eventually, soon, it will show up in Scrabble. You'll be able to use it. But we're going to be neck deep again in what the brain does and what the mind does. Um, the mind is aware of itself. You have self-awareness. The mind reasons. In other words, applies, takes input, sensory input, and makes decisions about what it means. So it gives meaning and intentionality. The mind decides, and that's very important, because nowhere did Wilder Penfield, when he was probing the mind electrically, nowhere did he find a place that had anything to do with decision-making. Decision-making is not in the physical brain. What's the implication of that? Where is decision-making? That's will, by the way. There's no place in the brain where we have an, uh, have assigned responsibility, designated area for decisions or will. So the mind reasons, the mind decides, the mind decides what is to be learned, 
and what is to be recorded. And computers have been really, really helpful here because we can kind of see what's happening inside of us by what you do when you sit at your computer. It's kind of a picture for you. It's very helpful. Not for me, because I don't like computers. It's very helpful for, for most. See, because the brain records the data, for example. The mind decides what's to be recorded, and the brain records the data. The brain is a mechanism that relays the mind's decisions to the motor systems. Um, and again, sensory systems accept information uh, into the brain in a physical form, in a chemical, electrical form. The mind then looks at that, those chemical reactions and interprets them and assigns meaning and makes decisions and sends that information back out and the motor systems reveal decisions. Anyway, mind actions and brain actions. That's, that's where we're headed again today. Knowing the difference between a brain action and a mind action. They are not the same. They are very different. And why are they different? How did they get different? The brain is the machine, the computer, if you will. The mind is what? It's the programmers, the operators, the controller. The mind is pushing the keys. The mind is looking at what the brain puts on the screen and interprets it assigns meaning to it, and then makes a decision and sends it out. Okay, the, the, that truth is filled with implications, and, and that's implications that we absolutely must, must confront. Why? Romans 5.12. The physical brain is going to die. Physical brains die physically. The soul, spirit, or the mind is immortal. And that's something that can be proved, by the way. I don't have, I'm not that smart. Once I figured out I could prove that the mind was immortal, I thought, wow, that wasn't very hard. Everyone should be able to do that. And I'm right. Everyone should be able to. It isn't that hard. Another important aspect in all of this is the mind programs the brain to function automatically. Now, now we're getting into the waking systems, the waking mechanism. Just like you can take your computer and you can say, turn on at 8 o'clock in the morning. Show me this picture. Uh, keep time for me. Play this song. You can do all of those things. And you can just get up, make my coffee, turn on my lights. And all of this stuff is automatic, isn't it? The mind begins to program the brain to function automatically. It does it when you're very tiny. Right now, those two twins that are terrorizing my lovely wife in what is supposed to be a Sunday school class, they have automatically, uh, and why would I say two twins? Duh. They would automatically, when they're little, they are telling their brain to function automatically, to do things automatically. Why do they want the brain to do things automatically? Why do you want them to do, want to, your brain to do things automatically? So that you're free to go do stuff, and think stuff, and explore stuff, and cause problems. Exactly what's happening right now. The twins, right now, are planning to steal a car. 
We'll find out whose it is at the end of the service. They are delightful. And I'm so, I wish them on everyone. All of you, as I said, could have children like that. It's great for your self-esteem. <laughs> we, the brain, the mind begins as a small child to, to, to train the brain to function automatically and so that then the mind, uh, um, will be able to free itself and pursue and explore more complex endeavors and the brain just takes an increasing number of routine performances on to where it's doing all kinds of things. You know that's true. You have driven across the city and you don't remember where you were. You're on automatic pilot, so to speak. It's just you're just functioning automatically while your mind is doing what? Causing all kinds of problems for you. Yes, exactly right. It is, it is delving into areas. There is this automation system that is there. And, and that is what Jennifer in Arizona is asking about, sorta. She may not know that she's asking about it. She has a dream question. But what, what she's getting into is the implications of the origins of mind energy. Or where does the energy for mind function come from? Um, the source of mind energy. Let me explain that a little bit. If I'm going to lift weights, I have to have energy for for whatever muscle group I'm using. If I'm going to curl large amounts of, uh, what do I need? Large amounts of weights. I'm going to work the biceps, some of the chest and the trap muscles. What do I got to do? I have to have an energy for those muscles. Where do I get it? Food. I have to have energy. If I'm going to run a marathon, I've got to have energy. I've got to convert food into energy, Right? Where does the energy for the mind come from? Is it physical? And that's what Jennifer is asking. It's electrical. We're pretty sure it's electrical. But now we have the question is, we can't seem to see it. So if it's electrical, can we have two forms of electrical energy? One we can see and one we can't. And here's another question. Can the mind draw its energy from another mind? And if it does, if it can, when? That's, by the way, Romans 5.12. See, that's energy from without. Or what we call the waking mechanism again. When I say waking mechanism, I'm not talking about getting up and going to work at 8 in the morning. What am I talking about? I'm talking about resurrection. Or what we also call the continuity of the soul. Once the Bible, or I'm sorry, once the brain dies, the body dies physically, what happens to the mind? That's called continuity, continuity of the mind. There must be continuity of the mind, otherwise I cannot prove existence. We've had that lecture before. If you weren't here for that, it's back there somewhere uh, in one of those uh, ones on the internet. Um, but if you haven't ever heard it and you never are coming back, uh, which happens a lot here, driving away visitor every Sunday. But if, if that's the case, ask, ask me after the service why you have to have continuity of your mind or, in order to have existence, and I'll explain it to you. In any event, I'm talking about continuity of the mind or resurrection or, again, why do we sleep? Does the brain matter get tired? 
We say it does. My mind is tired. My brain is tired. Why does the brain... And by the way, if you don't shut your body down, what happens to you? There's a, a, a gentleman here recently that wanted to watch every World Cup soccer match, and he would not force himself to watch everyone, would not sleep. What happened to him? Died. You have to sleep. Remember that? You're dependent on it. We have sleep. What else do we have? We have air. Got to have water. Got to have food. And some would say you have to have light. And I agree with that, by the way. That's another. You're dependent on those. You lack those and you die. As an illustration, everybody on the count of three holds your breath. Now you're, now you know what the Sunday school teachers are doing down there, right? What they're dealing with. You have to have all of those. Does the brain matter get tired? Like a bicep. Does it have to sleep? When it sleeps, what happens to the mind? I had a dream last night. I was telling Lori. By the way, you can tell it's a dream. How can you tell it's a dream when you're dreaming? Because you can't control it. And you have no control of it. My trumpet. I had a dream that my trumpet had come apart in two things. And I took it to the trumpet repair place. And there was a man. And I said, can you fix it? And he said, yeah. Like, like it had been put on a bandsaw and cut in half. But... For whatever reason, I was decided in my dream that I couldn't control that the trumpet had broken, the welds had broken. So I wanted him to weld it back together. And he told me he could for $2,500. And I thought that was it. So I'm arguing with him in my dream, trying to convince him. Now, what is that? What is that dream? What is my mind doing? I'm going to tell you that that's the waking mechanism. Among other things. Where does my mind go when the brain, the physical brain, is unable or will not function any longer and starts to shut itself down? <clears throat> By the way, it's not a coincidence that God describes physical death for believers as sleep. He doesn't say it about unbelievers. Unbelievers do not sleep. Believers sleep. There, as you remember, that is a that is a temporary suspension of service. That's how he describes death, death, physical death for believers. Unbelievers, no. Believers, temporary suspension of service. And God does that because God, as the designer, uh, as omniscient, certainly understands what he designed and created. He understands the waking mechanism. He knows how the mind gets energy. Where the energy source is. And how the energy is provided to the mind. And what happens at death. Some think that the brain provides the energy. And I won't argue with that. If, if that, I, I can see some real... The physical brain provides the energy because there is an interdependence between the two. Some will, will tell you that the brain is the one providing the energy. Uh, well, then that's why I asked you, can I get energy from an outside source? What maintains the continuity of the mind? Some form of energy has to do that. And continuity of the mind has to be true. More on that later. And more on how Noah fits in all of this. And love and the typology of Paul. We'll get to that soon.
which of course means eventually. For today, we have stuff from last week, our own immediate implications. I just wanted to get you uh, started on Wilder Penfield, because why? Why am I doing it to you? That's right. The uh, first fruits are what some would call Ishtar, or some would call Easter. The, uh, the Easter Ishtar, actually, first fruits service is coming, and it's all going to be about somatic cells, germ cells, and... Uh, and epilepsy. And make sure you invite your friends. Now, for those who have been absent and for those who intend to remain absent, and uh, that's for the Anchorage Internet people, hi. I know you're there. I know where you live. We do intend to hunt you down. But I've been pounding away on the death generation component. That is transferred to each and every child. There's one now. A child. He has a death generation in him now. He got it from who? He got it from his father. The death generation or the mortogenic factor is in each and every child through the conception fertilization, fertilization process. And it's brought there by the father. The father's sperm, we have biologically been able to determine, carries the death generator. So we die. Each individual dies because there is a, there is something in us that is making us die. And it comes through the Father. Romans 5.12. And all of us have it. We're all dying. It is obvious that I am dying. It's not so obvious some of you are dying, but it's going to be obvious for all of you. This is the future. Right here. It isn't good. And we all have, we all have it and we all die. And because of this poison in us that comes from the male, uh, we're all going to die. Now, there's some exceptions. There's the rapture. But I'm going to make the case for you that in the rapture, what happens? What is happening in the rapture process? You're dying in that process. You're just doing it so quickly you can't tell. So all are going to die because he has to fix the mortogenic factor in all of us, right? He's got to do it. But one did not die the way we are all going to die. One died differently. It's very, very important that you realize that Christ had a unique death. He had a unique birth. Why did he have a unique birth? We've covered this. Why? You can tell me. All shout it out. We'll pretend for the internet. Just make noise and then I'll, I'll assume, I'll, I'll make them think you had the answer. Okay, that's all I got was a cough. <laughs> Look, he had to be born differently because the morogenic system or factor, the death generation could not be transferred to him. He's God. That's not going to work. So he has a virgin birth where his father is himself. I'll get to that in a minute. So his birth was absolutely unique. His life absolutely unique because it was sinless. And therefore his death was absolutely unique. No death like his. His is the only death that was in any way like his at all. And you can really see that in the crucifixion information from the Romans. The Romans said there's never been a crucifixion like this, ever. This one didn't go by any of the ways. We got a list of things, how it's supposed to go. They were very well organized. He didn't do anything they, had him, they thought he would do or that they had done to anyone else. 
He is the one that was born without the mortogenic or the death generation factor. He's the one born of the virgin woman, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. God is his father. That's technically correct to say that, but it's also important to know that God is him. So God is both the father and God is the child. He is both father and the child. Very important that, and surprisingly few get it even though they have Isaiah 9.6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. That's the two advents of Christ. The child is the sacrificial aspect of his first coming. The son is the millennial kingdom aspect, or the millennial king, the kingship, or the messiahship that he will be given, or that he will be undertaking. For a thousand years. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's the, the born and the uh, government. That's the two aspects of the two advents of Christ. And his name will be called. This is very important. This is why I quote it as often as it comes up. And his name will be called Wonderful. That's the one name. You can call him Wonderful. Counselor. You can call him count, I Wonderful. I, Mr. Counselor, that works. Mighty God. I, Mr. Mighty God. Those three names. Everlasting Father. That's Christ's name. Unfortunately, that's never emphasized in churches. That his name is Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. The child is the everlasting father. That's his name. This is the triune Godhead being discussed in Isaiah 9-6, as well as, again, the two comings of Christ. Okay? Do expect to fully... I'm sorry. uh, Don't expect to correct... Sometimes I don't write all the words down. Don't expect to fully understand the triunity of God. If you ever go to a church and a pastor gets up or the teacher gets up and he says, Today, I'm going to explain the triune nature of God so that you all understand it. Get up and leave. Because he's, what's that word that I want? Yes, he's an idiot. You're not going to get it. You're going to try to understand it. You're going to know it's true. We're finite beings. It's a triune, infinite God. We'll do the best we can. We have to believe things that he says are true. Anyway, the point is, Jesus Christ had no death element in him. Absolutely none. He's God himself. No death generation, no death element, no death factor. He was not subject to death. He was not dying. He was not decaying in any way. He was all life. Nor, by the way, could he be killed. I have uh, John 10 to read to you here. 10, 17. Let me read that really fast. Therefore, my Father loves me. Notice he calls it. We're supposed to call God the Father. What do we say? Do the Lord's Prayer with me really fast. How's it start? Our. We say our Father, not Christ. He's part. He's in the tri. Not part. He is in the triune Godhead. He says, "My Father." Big difference between him and us. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Three things made perfectly clear. It's a command. And no one can take his life from him. He cannot be killed. He can, however, lay it down and take it up. And I make the case that he did that for others as well. He can take your life and he he can lay your life down and he can take your life back up. He has that kind of power. Duh, he's got. He could lay his life down, take it up, lay it back down again, take it up, lay it back down, take it up. He can do it as often as he wants. He could do it to you, he could do it to me. And I made the case in the past that he did it to Thomas. And he probably did it to every one of his disciples. Today, I'm going to show you what I can do. That's why he said, you believe because I've showed you stuff. Blessed are the people that believe and I have not shown them. I am the, do, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? He asked them, right? So anyway, no one can take his life from him. He can lay it down. He can take it up if he so chooses. Again and again, he has power. And the command, what is the command? That's the third thing. We'll get to it in a second. John 10, 17 through 18, by the way, leads to John 10, 28 through 30. These are tied together. Very important you know this, so I'll read that to you. It's kind of a uh, uh, an aside, an addendum. Think, uh, think of it that way. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, nor shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Those two are related. No one can take his life from him. And no one can take you from him. No one takes it from me. No one is able to snatch them out of my hand, out of my Father's hand. See, it says that all the same thing. My Father, verse 29, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are the same. My name is Everlasting Father. Okay, got all that? No one can take from Christ what is his. They can't take his life. It's impossible. He has to lay it down, and no one can take you. It's impossible. By the way, everybody tells me, well, there's an exclusion for myself in that. And I'm going to ask you, are you sure you're acting on your own self? No, you're not. You're being deceived by somebody into thinking that you were making decisions about yourself. You really aren't. You have no power to take yourself out of his hand. It's ridiculous. It's impossible to kill Christ and it's impossible for anyone to take anyone from his hand, including themselves. And it's not surprising, though, that many insist otherwise. And this is where Bob from Palm Desert, who wants to talk about the typology of Paul, he wanted me to provide a perspective on an upcoming book entitled Killing Jesus. Let me read. Coach Steve, please comment and provide a perspective on the following books. Killing Lincoln. Killing Kennedy. Killing Jesus. The living dogs are listening. Thanks, Bob. Okay. What I want you to notice immediately is the juxtaposition in there. Huh? 
the adjoiningness, if you will, that which is adjoining, as if all three of those have equivalents, killing Lincoln, killing Kennedy, killing Jesus. I suspect the author who wrote these three books uh, thinks that they do have some equivalents, which is a catastrophic error. That is relevatory of his uh, misunderstanding. Again, it is impossible to kill God. Impossible. No one can do it. No one did it. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. God manifests. He's the invisible made visible. Any title of any book that in any way implies that Jesus the Christ was killed is worthless and incompetent. Jesus Christ demonstrated his total and complete authority over his life when he extinguished it in an instant, much to the shock of the Roman executioners. He it, he blew it out, I tried to say that way. Uh, that's the best I could think of, or the best I have ever read. He is in complete and total authority, and in an instant, boom, one instant he is alive and vibrant, and the next instant he is gone. He is showing complete and total control. You have all watched silly movies that will tell you otherwise. Didn't happen. I've read John 10. No one can take my life. I do it all. It's all me. That's what he said. And when they saw him, those Romans saw that he extinguished or snuffed out or blew out the candle of his life, dismissed his life, probably a better way. When they saw him do that, they were shocked, stunned. There has never been a death like this. There's never been a crucifixion like this. And they knew immediately, this is God. And they said so, Matthew 27, 54. Jesus Christ effectively announced his approaching death while still maintaining his full vigor. You will say to me, how do you know he was still maintaining his full vigor? How do I know that? i to watch the time because I started early. I'm seeing the drool form on the outsides of some of your mouths. You're doing the right thing drinking that water. I'm kidding. I have people on the internet, by the way, that think I'm what? Very funny. Yes, they do. You laugh, but they are convinced. <laughs> for the record, you internet people, the folks here do not have the reverence that you have for me. <laughs> okay. Let me show you how I know. 34 7. Deuteronomy. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Now remember, who's Moses? He is the prophet like unto me, right? That's what he said. You're going to find somebody who's, who takes elements of my life and puts them in his life. Actually, it's the reverse of that order. But Moses said, you will know who God the Messiah is when you see elements so of his life and death and compare and see them in mine because I am a prophecy of his. The prophet like unto me is what Moses said. I am a prophecy of the great prophet that is coming, the Messiah. So I can look at the death of Moses and I can figure out the death of Christ. The death of Christ and the death of Moses have to be what? Related. 
They have to be the same in some way to where you can see Christ's death. So here it is. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And God buried him in the in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Beor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Oh, that's cool. That tells you when you go to the uh, Jerusalem and they're giving you a tour of Christ's tomb, what's just happened to you? You've been cheap. Yeah. Okay. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. Okay? And the children of Israel wept for Moses. So take all of those elements and now go over to the crucifixion. Christ was not diminished in any way by the crucifixion process. And then, and then when he decided, he dismissed his life. Poof, gone. And what happened as soon as he did that? Earthquake, the veil torn, saints came, resurrected out of the tombs, went into the city. Who were the saints? They were the saved, but were who? Name them. Who came out of the tombs and went into the city? And then where did they go? Just come up with a few names. I mean, God just went poof to his own life. And at the same time, he brings those people out of those tombs. And he tears that veil and he has an earthquake. And the Romans freaked out. No death like this death. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. I doubt the author of Killing Jesus has any idea how foolish his title is. I suspect his book will likewise reflect more foolishness. I humbly submit an alternate Title. Perhaps. What are you thinking? There is no killing Jesus. Are you an idiot? And I thought, well, that might be too long of a title. Might need some slight editing. I might hurt his feelings. And for that, I'm sorry. Not really. You see, this is the command. This part, this is part of the Revelation 13.8. The plan that is before time. This command I have received from my Father. What command was that? To lay down his life that he gets, that he takes it up again. Lay it down and take it up. That's the plan. That's the command. The triune God before they created the foundations of the universe. That's their triune decision. Now, I know some will say, hey, one-eyed, big-boned pastor person. What about the two sermons of Peter? Acts 2.23 and Acts 3.15. What about them? Huh, huh, huh? What about them? What's your answer to that? Usually they go nanny, nanny, poo-poo. And they think that that text, by the way, seems to imply that uh, the Jews put Christ to death. Acts 2, Acts 3. They're really confident that it is. I've got a little bit of time, so I'm going to run through it just really fast. So that you can sure. Peter, in his first sermon, him being delivered. By the way, not betrayed, delivered. The word means delivered. Christ being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. There's your 13.8 revelation again. You have taken by lawless hands. He's talking to Jews. Peter is. 
that came on a feast day, right? And you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Okay? And they say, oh, see, there's proof that the Jews killed Christ. And again, in, in, in Acts uh, 3.15, they'll use both of those. And unfortunately, that's many throughout history have, have agreed with people who say that. But did the Jews kill Christ? No. What did they do? They delivered him. Judas delivered him. It was very important for Judas to be the one that delivers Christ. Not betrays, can't betray omniscient God, delivers. Obviously, the pharisaical Jews, the religious order of the Jews, the Jewish uh, hierarchy, the, the church hierarchy, if you will, not a church, the temple hierarchy, obviously, they just delivered Christ. And Christ controlled that delivery process. It was at his direction. And they delivered him to who? To the Romans. And what did the Romans attempt to do? They attempted to kill him. And Peter knew that. Let me ask this. Were the Romans successful at killing Christ? No. Ask them. No crucifixion like this. We didn't succeed in any aspect of it at all. Not one element. Not one thing went right for us here. Not one. And Peter knew that. And his audience knew that. It is equally obvious that both the Pharisees and the Romans each thought that they had the ability to kill Christ. And that, by the way, is a delusional, insane mindset. And that returns to Revelation 19.19. I get a whole crowd of people show up to Revelation 19.19 in a valley, all convinced that they're going to kill God. How's it going to go for them? Just like it went in Gethsemane. Not so good. But still, the Jewish religious order and the Roman army nonetheless believed Jesus Christ was someone who could be captured and executed by them. They thought that. Even though that's an infinite being there. How big is an infinite being? Let's get a rope. Let's tie up the infinite being. Where are we going to tie him to? Just logically, just work yourself through it. The Jewish religious order, the Roman army, nonetheless believed that Jesus Christ could be captured and executed. In opposition directly to the display of John 18.6, where every single one of these people are what? Face down in the mud. How did he do that to them? He recited his name. He told them his name. I am, they fall down in the mud. Can't move. Can't move. How do you capture somebody that goes, I am, and you all fall down? Not only do you all fall down, everything falls down. And nothing can move. If that's your plan, let's, let's get a chain. Put him in a cage. It's going to work. Anyway, it is, and that's something also by the way, that Peter knew he was there. Anyway, it is true that the Jews thought that they were delivering Christ, and it is true that the Romans thought that they were trying, that they were going to kill him. Neither were doing either. The Jews couldn't and didn't deliver him, and the Romans couldn't and did not kill him. Christ is in and was in absolute control. His consent is, is in authority here. There is no such thing as a Christ killer. It is not possible. Acts 2.24 tells you that. It's not possible that he should be held by death. It's not possible that you can hold him by anything. 
You can't capture him and you can't kill him. It's not possible. What Peter is addressing is not what they did, what they believed and what they intended. It is the unbelief and the intent of his Jewish audience. And why is he doing it? He is exposing their unbelief and their intentions to them. Why? What's he trying to do? What's he doing to them? He's loving them. What's he want for them? He wants for them what the Roman army got. He wants them to repent of their unbelief. Ask the most obvious of the obvious questions. Why did Jesus allow the Romans to go through their little crucifixion? Think of it as a little dance, if you will. They're going to do all of these things. This is God. They're going to do... Why didn't they just go again? Why this guy? All he's got to do is go, I am. We all follow him. But he allowed them, and they did. It's incomprehensible. I, I try to imagine it. Let's, let's, I have found a Kodiak bear. And he's in my garage. And there he is. He's 1,500 pounds. And he sees me and thinks, ooh, that's what's in there. And I'm going to go in there with a squirt gun. And that's my plan. Why would I have a plan like that? And now take that infinitely much bigger. I have omniscient God and I got him in chains. Why? Why am I even trying this? What's wrong with me? See, I'm delusional. I don't know who he is. And if I do know who he is, I don't believe he is what he is. So why did Jesus allow the Romans to go through their crucifixion routine here? The process. Being omniscient God, he knew they had no power unless he gives them the illusion of power, John 19.10. That's Pilate, by the way. Pilate says to him, I can kill you. Whoa! That's worse than writing a book saying that Christ is killed. I can kill you, Pilate said. I have, I can, I can kill you. Me, Pilate. No. You're insane. The Romans will fall down whenever he says his name. They are impotent. So why did he let them think otherwise? Why let the Pharisees think they are delivering him? Why let the armies of the Roman Empire think they can kill him? Why let the armies of the Antichrist think they can kill him? What is the point? Why? What and why is Christ doing? And why is he doing it in this exact way? Well, look at it um, maybe this way. The oblivious Romans received an extraordinary gift. There was no greater gift than to be in that execution detail. Because what was going to happen to them? They were going to be loved. He was going to show them something. They got tickets. They're completely oblivious. They're going to get an extraordinary gift. They witnessed John 10.17. They got to see Christ lay down his life, extinguish it, dismiss it, snuff it out in an instant. They saw vigor. They saw complete authority and control. They couldn't affect him. 
They couldn't get him to go where they wanted him to go. They couldn't stop him from going where he wanted to go. He, he yelled in a loud voice. He had total authority over his entire... There was no death like this, no crucifixion like it. Absolutely unique. And they got to see him lay down his life. And they also got to see him what? Take it back up again. Three days and three nights. They got to see both of it. That's a pretty good ticket. What a blessing. And, and, and something else is really cool. They were forgiven. Consider that uh, for a second. They are the Roman soldiers at the cross. They got to be one of the seven saints of Christ from the cross. They're in the Bible forever. I, I, I'm going to say it this way. You've heard it many times, but I'm going to kind of change it a little bit so you, you, I think you'll understand it better. Father, forgive these oblivious Roman executioners. They don't have a clue who I am. Um, and, and they don't know what they're doing at all. They're going to know here in a minute. That's Luke 23, 34. And when Christ says, Father, forgive them, what happens to the people he says that to? They're forgiven. Is that good news? That's really good news. These are the guys that are trying to beat him to death, and I mean success for that. They're trying to how do you drive a nail through the hand of God? He must give his consent, right? Because why? He cannot be killed. Why? Besides being God. Romans five twelve. Pretty soon these ignorant Roman soldiers are going to see power over death. Because there is no death factor in this man who is also God. And what will those Romans do? Every single one of them. Almost the whole army at some point. It spreads throughout the whole army. It's an incredible story. Those Roman ignorant soldiers are going to see power over death. And they will repent. And they will believe. And when Christ again asks that somebody be forgiven, that someone is forgiven. Believe, repent of your oblivious unbelief. That is why Christ let them continue in their stupidness. He intended to save every single one of them. It was not for him. It was for them. That is how God defines love. And that is why Peter described the hearts of his Jewish audience and not what they actually did. Because he wanted them to be saved. Because Peter knows a thing or two about what? An oblivious heart. He's got that down. It's interesting that he's called Peter. Peter means what? Rock. And Peter is dumb as a bag of rocks. And he knew it. His name should have been Hammer. Because he's dumb as a box of hammers. But Peter knew dumb. He knew shame. He knew what it was like to be so ignorant about who was in front of him. Stunning. Breathtakingly ignorant. And he knew we're just like him. And he had God's definition of love. Okay. In two weeks, March the 17th, more wilder pen-filled, more death generation. See, the implications that Christ had no death generation in him. Ah, there's some tremendous implications. When you understand that, it gets you away from a lot of heresy. And then more Noah. Let's rise and be the